Welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC. You can find us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter or send me an email to Gabe at thestateoftheart.org with any questions or complaints. How are you doing with the uh, coronavirus outbreak? Uh, I'm finding it hard to make anything, but this week I finally made a little video sculpture piece in my house. Um, I decided to sort of make a piece based on an old Namjoon Pike piece. I bought an old Buddha figure that I've got here and uh, have it sitting in front of a phone, which is just showing it itself through an, uh, an Instagram filter. So, you know, that's kind of how I feel these days, living my life out uh, on my phone connected to my face. Wondering if this is my real life or sort of a filtered view of it. Uh, I spend so much time on Zoom now. I'm getting like Zoom head all the time here. Just my, I feel like I, I look like one of the potatoes I pretend to be because uh, I'm just so Zoomed out. Um, but if you haven't had a chance to listen to our last week's episode, speaking of video art and video artists, uh, we interviewed Jennifer Juniper Stratford, who is an amazing artist who works with old uh, video technology and creates really compelling uh, video art pieces, music videos, performance artwork. In fact, she actually created a music video for our guests this week. Our guests this week are Yacht, the band, based out of Los Angeles, Claire Evans and Jonna Bechtolt are joining us. And we had a really great discussion about AI, making music with machines, what it's like to create an entire album that's generated by AI, their latest album, Chain Tripping, which was actually nominated for a Grammy. Uh, so what that's like, what it's like to collaborate uh, with the machine learning algorithm and how much control humans have and how important that control is when creating artwork. So let's start off the show. Yacht, thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So how is Yacht holding up during the whole COVID situation that's going on right now? We're losing our minds like everyone else. Yeah. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's coming to be in a, a bunch of different ways. Uh, we're doing a lot of projects, a lot of cleaning. We've cleaned every drawer in our mm -hmm. house. We've organized all the cables in the studio. Nice. We've reorganized our garage. We shot like three music videos in our living room. Yeah, we got oh, really wow. into collage and stop frame, uh, stop, yeah, stop frame animation. Are you stop thinking motion? about yeah. future performances and how this might affect, you know, performing music? Yeah, we're sort of trying not to think about that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the reality of the situation is that we probably won't be able to play shows again for at least a year, maybe more, depending on the psychic fallout of all of this for people. Right. Yeah, and our, our, we were with uh, one of the top three booking agencies, and they fired 200 of their staff members, including our agent. So who knows? Who knows what the industry is even thinking? Wow. Are you but, yeah. considering sort of online or digital performances? Uh, as of right now no <laughs> not not interested like performing music to camera is mega awkward in, yeah e even the best of circumstances i think there are alternative ways of connecting with fans that aren't necessarily like putting on a living room show to our computer mm -hmm. like yeah. we can have all kinds of shared experiences that aren't that maybe we'll get to a point where that's normalized and there's better technology and you know i'm excited to see what happens and how it all develops but right now it sounds awful yeah i've seen some zoom performances where the sound is just horribly filtered it sounds like everybody's yeah. playing through like a, a glass tube or something yeah no bueno and that's not even including we're not even talking about the monetary component of all of that there's still no like real service that would pay an artist to perform to a camera right so let's back up a little bit tell me yeah. the story of yacht how did yacht uh come about in the first okay. place I started Yacht in 2002, uh, and it's named after a sign that I saw in Portland, Oregon that's no longer with us. <laughs> the sign. The sign. The town. The but town is still there. <laughs> Hopefully. Port Portland is thriving in the eyes of sub. But um, yeah, the, the, the sign said, Young Americans Challenging High Technology. And I've always been into computers and using computers weirdly and 
potentially wrongly uh for creative purposes and, and so it, it seemed like a fitting name as i was just starting to use computers to to not only generate sound but to record sound and process sound and to make compositions so essentially using a computer as a one-stop shop to record perform arrange and market music where was the um, sign where did you see this sign seems like it was in, Nor- in north portland on mlk boulevard hmm. um yeah and it was like a big sign for a building that had long been abandoned and the windows were all broken out, but you could see that like the last thing that happened in the building was a a birthday party because there was like a glittery (laughs) happy birthday sign kind of falling out of the window. And so there was something romantic about it and mysterious that really caught my eye. And I was like, okay, yeah. And I liked that it was like sort of like a spy thing too. It was an acronym, Y-A-C-H-T. And all of those things seemed to fit together for what I wanted to do at the time. Mm -hmm. And Claire, when did you get involved? I joined Yacht in 2008, 2009. Eight. Uh, eight-ish. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a soft, a soft entry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She started singing on songs in 2006 and seven, but she wasn't an official member until 2008. Yeah. So the band has had a lot of different iterations over the years. And we've, we, all, Jonna before me and us together after that point, um, have always been really into this idea of keeping the same name for a project that's had so many mutations that, you know, on paper, it's been like seven different bands, maybe different lineups, different sounds, different approaches, different, you know, personnel. But it's always been Yacht because, well, at its core, it's always been Jana. And also the sort of central spirit of trying to challenge technology in a fun way has always been the same, no matter what we're doing. So did you both share this sort of interest in challenging technology? I mean, why? how did technology kind of come into play in the first place? Um, for me, it was just accessibility. Like, I didn't, I didn't have access to a recording studio. I didn't have access to, like, out, outboard modular synthesizers or any kind of synthesizer at all. So the idea of having an accessible, affordable, consumer-level tool that could potentially produce stuff that was indistinguishable from fancy studios and fancy design studios and video places like i loved that idea yeah we both come from a diy punk rock background i mean we both played in bands when we were teenagers and you know did everything ourselves in a in a context of independent music which was a lot of like making your own t-shirts making your own records booking your own tours you know having these kind of really radically independent um decentralized social experiments happening all the time. So the idea of incorporating technology in order to sort of reach beyond our means has always been really, you know, it's like it's it's the same as making a zine or yeah. you know, mm. making booking a tour on your own. It's just like another tool you can use to make your stuff bigger and stronger and yeah. reach more people. And punk for us doesn't mean like a style or anything. It just means that you don't know you don't you don't know what you're doing in some capacity. <laughs> Whether that's so it's not like, about the aesthetic. It's more yeah, about the it's, yeah the, exactly. It's the, like the if mood. you don't know how to play an instrument well or if you don't know how to use a computer, like the, those are all punk rock. Things. Yeah, it's sort of this like it's it's not about virtuosity or gear. You know, it's about spirit and communication and community. So let's talk about the spirit. When you first started Yacht, did you have more optimism when it came to technology? I mean, has that changed over the the last 10 years? I'm a radical optimist uh, to the core, and that hasn't changed. I mean, our circumstances have changed and our world has changed so much, so it's it's really hard to be optimistic. But 
I, th- I remain a true optimist. I think Claire is way different than I am in that <laughs> in that respect, but she can tell you. And we balance each other out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think I'm more cynical than I was probably 10 years ago. I think if anyone who isn't is taking some weird vitamins, but yeah, I, the world has changed a lot and it, it seems to me as though the things that were possible, at least on the internet in, you know, the early to mid 2000s are essentially impossible now. I mean, fully independent distribution and communication platforms like mm-hmm. the world of blogging is kind of when we when we sort of came up mostly as a band when we became successful was in the age of music blogs when you know your the right mp3 posted by the right enthusiastic person on the right you know non-corporate website could actually have a real impact on your life and could actually reach a lot of people um whereas now you know you have to go through these much more prescribed platforms and channels and there's lots more you know exclusivity about access than there used to be. I think all the fun democratizing components of the World Wide Web are pretty much gone now at scale. And there's still amazing stuff happening at small scales. But, you know, if you're trying to go from one to many, it's incredibly much more challenging than it was even 10 years ago. Yeah, I feel like there was a period of innocence in a way when it came to the internet. Uh, We're definitely long past that in my perspective. But I, yeah. I don't know, especially growing up making, I used to make like artwork on an old Macintosh computer in the 80s and making hypercard games and all this sort of like fun awesome. stuff, you know, but now yeah. I feel like everything is just controlled by certain platforms and clamped down on and there's so much hate going around. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's just a very different vibe in my opinion, but it's yeah. also, it's very complicated. I mean, the sort of, it's, it's complex for us because we, we come out of this punk culture where like the idea of selling out was a really big sort of, I don't know, like fear or sort of aura that that floated around us all all the time like if you were if you did something that was like too far beyond the scale of what was appropriate for your community then you were perceived as selling out and and mm. now it's like you kind of can't do anything without selling out you can't have <laughs> right it's like everybody sold in or something into platforms yeah like we're, we're all by default shilling for the corporations like just in order to even be part of the conversation let alone like trying to do something commercial how do you get away from that you don't you can't you're stuck I mean, now I, forever i mean you just have to make you have to make sensible choices at every turn and just realize that you're stuck in a system that can't really support itself or you and so i think you just really have to look at your small communities and stick with them yeah mutual support of other artists at your scale is always really important there's uh a guy named matt dryhurst that talks a lot about interdependence mm. and yeah we won't go into his stuff but yeah look him up he's got a lot of good ideas about what all, this all means is this sort of related yeah, to I your think, uh sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say i mean I'm, i've always been like a real um enthusiast and admirer of like the user as a category and i think that people users i.e human people who are interacting within these much larger systems have always been able to create beautiful things and and connect with one another and subvert the platforms that they're a part of and do weird interesting art and there's always going to be these places where users are thriving not because of the platforms that they're participating in but in spite of them and that is like the most interesting space for us always is to try to figure out how to how to harness that energy and make space for it as much as possible do you see a difference between users and fans hmm yeah i do i i think that Fans are a very separate category of human beings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fans are special. And we're all fans of different things. I think we have to sort of spread out our fandom so that everybody can feel supported. Mm-hmm. But I love nothing better than being a fan and having a fan. I think it is like the most humbling and beautiful relationship two human beings can have mm-hmm. is for one to be a fan of the other or for there to be mutual fandoms because it's just this pure form of 
you know, love and support. And, yeah. you know, we have fans that have been with us for many, many years who we know, like we know well as people and who have, we have watched grow up and who have watched us grow up and we've shared experiences. And it's not like this, it's not this like monodirectional thing. It's like this very, it's a constantly sort of cyclical and and i don't know it's, it's a shared experience which is really special yeah yeah and you seem to use a lot of interactive elements to sort of tie the fans to new albums can you talk a little bit about some of the ones you've used like maybe for uh i thought the future would be cooler yeah totally we've always been really interested in doing everything we can using technology to extend the message of the songs or to extend the life of the songs or the world of the songs that we're making and so we've done a lot of projects that you know try to reach into people's worlds and, and shake them up a little bit. So for the album that you're referencing, I thought the future would be cooler, which is 2015. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, Five years we did a ago lot now. Of projects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's troubling. Um, we did a ton of projects sort of, that that song was about, I, I think. I, album you mean. Yeah, sorry. Well, a song and album, but yeah. that album was really about sort of like our, our, our growing cynicism about platform distribution and capitalism and, we were trying to find ways to pierce that by manufacturing scarcity, the kinds of scarcity that were, were a big part of our art and music consuming experiences as young people for the modern age. So finding ways to sort of pierce through the, the signal to noise problem and make experiences that were really unique and interactive. But also like really deeply followed our curiosity in everyday and like latent objects. Okay. So yeah, totally. <laughs> so part of that was finding ways to actually activate old technologies. One of the projects we did around the album was um, a, a project where we, we essentially revealed the album artwork for the first time to fans only by a fax. So instead of like, you know, sending a JPEG to Pitchfork and saying, mm -hmm. here's the new album cover, it was, we built this web application, which had a database of every fax machine, every sort of publicly accessible fax machine in America. And that database we made by hand too. My mom helped us. <laughs> it was how, did you find, yeah. how did you find all these IP addresses? Well, no, first we just started by thinking of where fax machines exist in America. And so places like FedEx Office and Office Depot and Office Max. Mm -hmm. And so then we just, we tried to find if there was an existing database of all of those stores publicly available, which there isn't really. So then we ended up just searching uh, locations and then entering in Manually. The, yeah, manually. Their wow. Their, their, yeah, their addresses and their fax numbers. But the sum experience was that as a, as a user, a fan, you could go to this website, enter your zip code, and it would send a fax directly to the closest fax machine to you. That, that could have been like an office depot 12 miles away. It could have been, you know, you could, you could manually enter in your own fax number if you had an office or one in your basement or something, and it would send it to you directly. And then that, uh, image, we made an addition of 300 of these like highly dithered images that each came with a little manifesto about, you know, the album and, and this, this idea of, of, you know, unique distribution in, in, the, in our modern age. And um, yeah. And so we love this idea that you could kind of communicate an image via sound, which is what fax is. It's also what it is to make music. So mm -hmm. we ended up, I mean, we have kind of some younger fans. So we ended up sort of sending faxes to these people who had never seen a fax machine before, didn't know what they were. And it reminded me a lot of being a teenager and listening to a record for the first time and being kind of blown away by the fact that a needle goes in a groove and a sound comes out. Like for this generation of kids, it was like my telephone, <laughs> a telephone sends right. me an image. Yeah, it's kind of hard to comprehend, I think. Yeah. Uh, were people at yeah. Office Max just completely confused by why they were getting bombarded <laughs> by fans suddenly? Oh, yeah. 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 We got a lot of really cute texts and emails when it was happening because, yeah, we only sent out 300. And as soon as the, th the 300th was claimed, we stopped the application. 
Yeah. So it was, you had to sort of go out of your way to get this image. And then um, there was only so many of them to get. Turns out, too, that uh, every 7-Eleven in Japan, which there are thousands, they all have fax machines. Yeah, Japan the 7-Elevens still, in Japan yeah. are amazing. Yeah. Last time I went. And Japan still loves faxes, too. <laughs> so why, why is artificial scarcity important to you when it comes to doing these sort of like promotional activities for new albums? I think it's, you know, it's about, I don't know. I mean, I remember growing up and just the feeling of discovering something and feeling like I was the only person in the world that knew about this thing because I happened to come across this scuffed CD in the bottom of the used CD bin at the record store. or I happened to see this show by accident and the opening band blew my mind. Like that feeling of specialness and excitement about, about stumbling onto something special is something that is just, you know, completely absent in our world now. Mm. Everything is accessible to everybody simultaneously. And just rep, yeah, replicating that magic is important to us. Yeah. So giving people something they could feel like they had ownership over that was that was special and that you know connected them to us in that way that we felt connected to things which we came across when we were younger was you know for us just a fun a fun thing to try to to try to create do you think that that's uh sort of inherent in modern technology the, the lack of scarcity and how do, how do people deal with that in, in the art world and digital art world Oof, that's a big question. I mean, there's still <laughs> things I think which are yeah. kind of scarce in a way. I mean, we have a friend, uh, Jib Kidder, who makes music. He he has this theory about if you want to find a YouTube video that no one has seen, like no, you know, no, 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 not that no one has seen. That's real. He calls it real. Yeah, yeah. if you want to find something real <laughs> on the internet, what does that mean? You real? have you have to kind of yeah. you have to kind of unfacebook the thing, which is what he calls it. <laughs> that's mm. his phrase. Yeah. Which means you have to go in and start and and sort of log out of everything, so that there's no like preferences or whatever. There's no algorithm feeding anything to you, and then you have to search randomly on YouTube just based on date. You know, <laughs> you enter a random date into YouTube, and then you search for the thing that has the least views, <laughs> and that's how you come across like I don't know, you know, some video of someone's soccer game that has three views on it and that's right. the only real thing left on the internet yeah. is these kinds of like strange documents that are meant for not meant for public consumption but just happen to exist yeah. on these public platforms they're uploaded without a title they just have the date the file name whatever <laughs> yeah that's where you find the good stuff <laughs> yeah and that's the only kind of scarcity there really is i suppose it's like the scarcity of obscurity yeah, i wonder mean, if there's I a way know. to I... build that in to to kind of modern art like how do you build in new new forms of scarcity i mean i guess the facts is an interesting way to do that but i'm sure there's other ways thinking about like blockchain i, mean, I guess people yeah i hate to say on, blockchain yeah. at this point yeah, <laughs> same Maybe. why'd you make me say it? <laughs> i mean i think also part of it is creating art and experiences which are not for everyone you know i mean mm-hmm. i don't mean things that are super transgressive or scary or edgy or whatever but like I'm perfectly comfortable with the fact that most of the stuff that we make is for a small audience of people who have already kind of bought in or who like us or who have come across us in some way or another. And it's for them. You know, it's not for all 7 billion users of YouTube or whatever. It's just for the people that we love. And it's, you know, once you start operating with that as a frame of mind, there's so much less pressure. There's so much less of these sort of market demands that can really affect art in a bad way. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think you end up making better work, which can can have life beyond those 300 people that you're initially thinking about. So So when you go into making a new album, are you thinking about, oh, I'm inspired by this new technology? Are you thinking about lyrics? I guess maybe we can use chain tripping as an example, um, Mm -hmm. because it's such an interesting way of creating a new album. Can you tell us a little bit about how that was created? Yeah, I mean, it's a mix of things just to answer your first question a little bit is that normally, I mean, over the our long career as a band, we've tend to go into the studio with some sets of constraints in mind. Like we try to 
at least have a conceptual framework around what we're trying to do. You know, maybe not necessarily technology, but we're going to make an album about mystery. We're going to make an album about utopia. We're going to make an album about the future. Those things kind of keep us from losing our minds and trying to write something about everything. You can't write, you can't write about everything. You can only write about a few things at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chain Tripping was kind of the first record we made where the constraint wasn't conceptual so much as it was formal. Um, we actually made the album in a completely different way using different technology and different instrumentation. Um, so, I mean, I guess he- here's the big reveal. We used <laughs> artificial intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which was way beyond uh, our skill set, our bailiwick, historically. And it started off as a concept first, before we knew anything about what the state of the art was or where we were as a people <laughs> using AI to make any kind of creative output. So we started just with like a piece of paper and we wrote down everything that we wanted to accomplish. Uh, and then it ended up being wildly different than Which what we thought. Always, always how it goes. But yeah, we initially thought, well, okay, we'll make an album with artificial, artificial intelligence because, you know, here's this technology that's going to have a huge impact on the world of artists, but also on the world at large. And we as artists see ourselves as communicators of big ideas. And maybe we can use our very specific skill set to understand, explain, and communicate the importance of AI to a different public than, you know, the people that are already kind of bought in to it as a, as a, you know, slice of technology. Um, that was the initial idea. And then maybe, maybe we thought oh, this would be something that would be, you know, some kind of commentary on automation or some kind of statement on the way that these technologies are going to come along and, and displace artists in different ways. But pretty much the moment we started working on it and actually examining what the world of AI was. And we started working on this album in pretty much 2014? No, 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 16. Four years ago. Oh, I see. He's doing four with his hand. I'm very bad at dates. For me, it's like (laughs) yesterday, six months ago, or college. There's nothing else. It's getting more and more like that these days, (laughs) being stuck inside, too. I know, it's crazy. Anyway. Yeah, time is fake now, anyway. (laughs) 2016 is when we started working on it. And, um, you know, there were not a ton of tools available at the artist-friendly level. You had to be... There were zero. (laughs) Yeah, I was just being generous. Um, There were not any. Uh, There were sort of, on one end, there were tools that were marketed towards quote-unquote creators who were looking to, you know, make royalty-free music for their YouTube videos, which, you know, those tools didn't allow a lot of flexibility, a lot of control, were not really interesting from a creative standpoint. And, and also then, potentially weren't even AI. We don't know. They were just marketed as AI. Right. And then on the other side, there were tools that were, you know, in the research science community and were for playing around with code and which required a level of know-how about programming, which was far beyond ours, ours being mostly zero. So there was not really any in between. The, the comfortable place for artists to start chewing around is when there's tools that are bendable and flexible and adaptable to lots of different purposes, and that didn't really exist. So we we sort of threw ourselves into this world not knowing anything about it. Yeah, we started following everyone we could find on Twitter that had anything to do with the field, and we started seeing a lot of scientific papers being passed around. We just tried to read all these white papers, you know, <laughs> just so far beyond our understanding. We were looking at projects that were coming out of these intersections of, you know, code, art, generative art. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of, there was lots of work percolating at at those intersections, but most of it was incomprehensible to us. So it was a long process of self-education before we could even actually do anything using this technology. And And then the process that we ultimately ended up using was extremely sort of scotch taped together and, and janky and bootleg in the way that everything we do is, but it borrowed from lots of different approaches and adapted it into our, you know, very DIY working methods. And so when you say the album was generated in collaboration with machine learning or artificial intelligence, 
what elements were specifically generated um, by this this sort of methodology? Every okay, note and every word. Yeah. So and the artwork too, right? I and the something. artwork yeah. and the, the videos and the typography. Yeah. But you and... also had control over this in some way, right? It's not like you just uh, adhered to every single thing that the machine or the computer spit out. Yeah, no, yeah. We had a you would not like that record. Yeah, <laughs> we had a we had a mantra that output is not the end. So that that just means that when the computer spat something out, we weren't done with working with it. Mm-mm, that was just the beginning. Yeah. How so many I'm, iterations I'm, would you go through, like in a in a in a specific song? Was it like hundreds or thousands or ten? Thousands, <laughs> maybe thousands. Yeah. It was needlessly tedious. As a, I mean, I'll, I'll t- explain a little bit about the process without mm-hmm. getting too deep into the weeds. And the minute you feel me wandering off, please bring me back because okay. it Sounds can good. get really complicated. Okay. But basically, there's two sides to it, right? There's the there's the music side, there's the notes, and then there's the lyrics. So those were two different processes. Let's say three sides. So there's the music, there's the lyrics, and then there's the performance of the music and lyrics. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what makes an album. Yeah. Um, we we use machine learning for generating the notes, generating the lyrics. We used human know-how for performing and arranging the album. So to make the music, we fed existing melodies from our own back catalog through a machine learning model called a latent space interpolation model, which is a model that basically allows you to and this is a very unscientific way of describing it, but explore the interdimensional mathematical space between existing melodies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the sort of high dimensional mathematical space and sample from that space and and sort of spit out lots and lots and lots of variations variations yeah. that are kind of these hallucinatory paths untraveled. And we like we liked to think about that as like every decision that we made in the past could have been a different decision. And now we're able to view all of that uh, simultaneously and yeah. sample from that. So every every guitar riff that we wrote could have gone slightly differently. And so now we have all of that information, not as a guitar riff, mind you, just as like sheet music. So then we still have to perform it and learn how to play it. But yeah, so this is all just like on a symbolic level, not raw audio. And you, so would, we're give running... this, you would give this okay. like actual samples to learn from or no, was it learn- ju- just MIDI. Yeah. Okay, just so MIDI. First, we had to notate our entire back catalog of 82 songs, every <laughs> oh, every no. single part. So every vocal melody, guitar part, piano, keyboard, drums, everything had to be notated. So we started to do that ourselves, then quickly became overwhelmed. And we found a person on Fiverr and paid them <laughs> to do it for us. I was going to ask if your mom helped with this one too. <laughs> no, yeah, no, that's beyond her skill set. Yeah. But then we ran pairs of these melodies, like all these different patterns from you know 18 years of making music. And in different combinations at different temperatures until we got hundreds and hundreds of different patterns and melodies that were just essentially used as source material. Um, so then when we went to the studio, we sort of listened to all these different melodies. We auditioned all these melodies that came to us from latent mathematical space. And not just melodies, drum patterns as well. So rhythmic information and melodic information. And we just listened for stuff that we thought was interesting. I mean, that's that's what human beings bring to these systems is our kind of unique capacity to make decisions and to say this is good or this is interesting or this yeah. is beautiful. Taste is still very much a human thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And then we took all those snippets that we thought were interesting and arranged them into songs, sometimes, you know, dozens of snippets from all different kinds of MIDI samples into one song, and then assigned every single one of those melodies to different instruments, which we then played live, recorded, performed and arranged ourselves in the studio. So it's this combination of, you know, mathematical, musical data and collage. You know, we're cutting up all these patterns and arranging them into a new image and then performance and arrangement, which become, you know, extremely important in a process like this. And the lyrics were also generated, right? Yeah, very similar process. We trained a corpus of 
gosh, millions of words. Two million words. But the one thing that was, it's very different from the lyrics and the melodies and rhythmic information is that with with the music, we were we only used our back catalog because we were able to use that latent space interpolation model. With lyrics, at this point, it wasn't possible to use such a small data set, so we couldn't use only our lyrics. Which was convenient because it allowed us an opportunity to train a text generating machine learning model on all of our influences. So every muse, you know, every band we'd ever loved, all of our friends' bands, our bands that our parents listened to when we were growing up, everything that was, you know, in the mix geographically around our communities growing up too. Which we sort of saw as replicating the creative process anyway. So like all of those words that we've heard in the ether are kicking around in our brains at some point. So it's, it's kind of like making a machine to replicate that. Yeah. And we worked with a really brilliant creative technologist and friend named Ross Goodwin, who's yeah, worked he was we've on been this, He was on yeah, this podcast two episodes yes, ago. Yes, yes. So we worked with Ross to create this this model based on all of our lyrical influences. And then Ross gave us basically one pass through it, you know, like one go of this model, which ended up being a few thousand pages of text, which we printed out on a single sheet of dot matrix printer paper (laughs) (laughs) old school technology mixed with high tech that's kind of our thing yeah now is like a five pound sculpture object (laughs) it's beautiful which we brought into the studio and and took the same approach as we did with the music which was you know going through this you know crazy unwieldy document and highlighting things which were beautiful or interesting or you know whatever compelling to us for different reasons arranging all those little fragments into songs and then sort of putting that on top of the melodies that we had created I mean, I think, you know, all of this could have been extremely overwhelming because one of the things about working with machine learning is that it is capable of generating stupendous amounts of stuff, like just the sheer volume and, you know, quickness by which these systems can just give you material is, you know, super daunting. And so for us, it was really important that we create a sort of structure of rules around around all of that so that we wouldn't become super overwhelmed. Um, and our rules were pretty simple, although they were kind of draconian in the studio. I mean, there were a lot of times where I was like, can we just not do <laughs> it this way? Yeah, we wanted to cheat a bunch of times, but we didn't cheat. We didn't. So basically, you know, we couldn't add a single word. We couldn't right. add a single note. We could only remove or rearrange. We could transpose things to the key that we were working in, but we couldn't like add a harmony. We couldn't improvise. We couldn't jam. We couldn't, you know add anything. It was just about taking all this raw material and all this chaos and arranging it into these little arrangements that, you know, were just a sampling of all that chaos brought into a form that is recognizable as music. What were some of the favorite lyrics that sort of emerged from this process? Oh, man. I mean, there's so many. I love the lyrics on this album so much because they're they're incredibly fluid in terms of their meaning. They are really flexible. They could mean nothing. They can mean everything just depending on how you perform them. Uh, one thing I really enjoyed about the model that Ross created for us is that it it sort of spat out these phrases which had the form of just idiomatic English, like sounded mm-hmm. like, f- you know, figures of speech, but weren't. So for example, I can feel it in my head like a dog in bed is one of my favorites. <laughs> or palm of your eye you know it's like it sounds like a phrase but it actually is completely meaningless it just has the form of a phrase and with these sort of interchangeable words that become really i don't know open and kaleidoscopic and and weird i mean there was so much i actually think it changed our brains reading through all this material yeah 
It's it gives you it get because it's just like yeah it's this this totally different relationship to language and the amount of sort of psychic effort you are putting onto this text as you're trying to force it to mean something as you're reading it like you're forcing it to hold together because you're a human being and that you're looking for patterns and you're looking for narrative and you're looking for you know order and you're just sifting through this ocean of words and it just makes your brain. It changes your brain reading it. I think is it, is it hard it to perform or sing these lyrics? I mean, if they're if they're sort of nonsensical in terms of context, yeah, totally. And but in a really interesting way. I mean, that's the thing about this album for us is that all the things which are challenging about it made us better performers because they made us way more mindful about our choices. Mm-hmm. I found that trying to sing these generated words gave me an appreciation for thinking about words as sounds before thinking about their meaning, Hmm. which is kind of what pop songwriters, successful pop songwriters already do, you know, because you can get so lost in meaning and narrative that you forget that things have to sound good. And and that it was really helpful to just look at a word and be like, okay, there's four syllables in this. I can, I can put this on top of this, this weird melody that I'm looking for exactly four syllables that go right here. And it doesn't really matter what it means. The meaning is going to come out later as I'm singing it. That works in the other direction, too, because you know, a lot of like pop songwriters end up reusing words that you've heard in songs over and over again. So we had this like unique opportunity to have very strange words that we could then break over these melodies. Because Claire wasn't just having weird words that she had to sing. She also mm-hmm. had to sing specific melodies with the words. So it was putting those two things together that was really difficult and super strange. Yeah, it kind of forced us to deconstruct how words in English, like just the natural cadence and rhythm of how you would pronounce or say things. There's lots of things on the album where, you know, a syllable is pulled pulled apart in this way that's not intuitive or a word is pronounced just not the way it's pronounced normally, just because that's how we could make it fit. And it creates this kind of character, this strangeness that um, is something that is to us, very, very central to the joy of working with machine learning is the, is the strangeness, strangeness. Yeah. And it's all so subtle, too, because like if we gave you this album and it was like, we wrote this album yesterday, no one would be like, oh, this is obviously written using AI tools. There's mm-hmm. there's no tell in it. Yeah. And that was really important to us. We didn't want the record to sound like software. We didn't want it to sound like the process. We wanted it to sound like us. And I think maybe that's what sets this experiment apart from some other experiments in machine learning and music is that there's actual stakes for artists like us. You know, we have a fan base. We have years of playing music for people and people having a relationship to our music and, you know, people thinking that the songs mean something. And, you know, we can't just come in, come into that with just some complete nonsense, gobbledygook, you know, AI music. We wanted to make something that like felt like us, that we could feel like we meant when we were performing it. And I think we succeeded in doing that because we sort of realized that a lot of where meaning lives in music specifically, but also in performance and in film, is in the the embodied experience of performing it and playing it. How you play it, the choices you make as you're putting it together, and how you sing and perform, and how you sing and perform to others. You know, that's that's where a lot of human meaning lives. That's why it's very difficult to train machine learning models to fully understand and and create things at the same way the same way that humans do, because a lot of it is really connected to our bodies. So do you view the album as a collaboration then? Is that what you'd call it? Or is it just purely a yacht album? <laughs> I mean, do you see it as a collaboration with all the people that were coding some of the, the background for this machine learning algorithm? Or Yeah, I, totally. Well, medium. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I people I think would want us to say it's a collaboration with AI, but I think right. that gives the AI an amount of agency that doesn't reflect what AI actually is and 
sort of feeds into this ongoing cultural stereotype of artificial intelligence as like a sentient being right. that you know has agency in that way. It's not that. Yeah. It's certainly a, a collaboration with the many people who created the tools that we use to make the album, but maybe no more than it w a normal album would be a collaboration with like the people who built our computers or our, right, or our keyboards or our or, guitars. Yeah. It's all just tools. I think it was for us on a personal level, really exciting to have an opportunity to have conversations with the people that build and create this technology because those people are very far outside of the, the everyday world of the working independent musician. Um, we sort of created this context by which we were justified in having you know, like frank and open conversations with research scientists at major corporations and artists and hackers and, you know, people who who had real control over how this technology is being revealed to the world. And that felt like a real, I don't know, a, an opportunity. Do you see yourself using AI in a future album or is this more like specific to chain tripping? We won't use it in the same way, but mm -hmm. I think, yeah, we'll always be curious to what people are doing with new things. I think it's it's become, yeah, we won't do this sort of incredibly strict rule-based system. I think chain tripping was kind of the control variable for all future experiments. Like this is now we know what it's like to work with this these tools in this really sort of strict and controlled way. Now they're just part of the tool set. I mean, right now we're working on a bunch of stuff because we're in quarantine and we're losing our minds and we're making videos. And sometimes when we're making videos, we want to do, you know, live action. Sometimes we want to do stop motion. Sometimes we want to use some weird, you know, machine learning vision model to create a blurry depth image. It's just another thing that's in the mix that we can combine with all of our other much more analog strategies to create something that is, you know, a unique document of our moment and of us. Yeah, I feel like a lot of machine learning work has a very particular look. I mean, I don't think it seems to be that way for audio yet. I, I don't know if you found other examples. But when I see visual art that's generated by machines, it all seems to have a very particular, uh, recognizable look. Have you found that? Oh, yeah. yeah we call that the computer accent. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what and is it, that? It isn't, what, yeah, it's where does in it music come too. from? It is in music. Is that it's like hard, the I idea mean, of like over-compressing something kind of in music? Well, if, if you're talking about like raw audio tools, mm -hmm. like nSynth and sample RNN, there's a weird low fidelity to them because everything, since it requires so much CPU and GPU to train these models, sample rates of audio have to be really low. So it's like it's 16K, which is, you know, like three times lower than a CD quality. So there's that part of it. But then there's also the way that a lot of these models deal with time. So let's say you have like a, a single cowbell hit that's one second long. You feed this into a model like sample RNN. It has no idea what to do with the timing of it. So it, it stretches it over multiple seconds and it, multiple hits and attacks. So it, it, yeah, it's really wonky with time in a fun way. But I also think that a lot of what you're talking about, this sort of this idea of the computer accent, which is something that I believe is is you is unique to this moment in AI and consistent across all mediums is an artifact of the fact that in order to really do anything at scale with machine learning, you still kind of have to have a level of know-how on, like a level of programming know-how that's that's pretty inaccessible for mm -hmm. most working artists. I think the minute we start seeing uh, AI tools integrated into existing creative platforms like Photoshop or Ableton Live, um, you'll see that accent kind of disappear because it will be incorporated into working artist processes and everyone's different perspectives and worldviews. A lot of AI art right now, and I love so much of it, is very much about like, look what I can do with this code. Right. And it it's not really tethered to, you know, an ongoing practice that exists outside of art and tech necessarily. It's also problematic with the libraries used to make it, right? The fact that these libraries are generated by a very specific type of person. 
So when you're working yeah. with like computer vision pro- pro- projects and that sort of thing, <laughs> you it's know, really there's a lot of uh, racist computers out there and all sorts of problems. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing is that this, that's why it's so important for artists to be using these tools is because, I mean, what an opportunity to use the technology of, you know, of the oppressor to like do real critique about the data yeah. sets that make up our culture. I mean, there is, I really think that AI is is most useful as a tool for understanding how we got to where we are versus as a tool to project into the future. The mm. sort of big flaw with the way that a lot of people think about artificial intelligence is that, you know, that the that the future pr- proceeds as a predictable consequence of the past, you know, that you can take the, a data set from history and then, you know, run it through a neural network and what it spits out is the future. That's not at all what it is. It's spitting out this sort of like fractalized, you know, kaleidoscopic broken image of everything that makes us who we are up until this moment. And if we don't have artists there to interpret that image and give it context and sort of explain where it comes from and situate it within a larger conversation and critique about tech and culture and racism and everything, then, you know, we're just going to keep perpetuating our mistakes. And that is the opposite of what we want, because these technologies are really, really powerful. And if they start repeating history's mistakes, and we are truly boned. Claire, tell me a little bit about the book that you published in 2018, uh, Broadband. How did this sort of come about? Oh, um, uh, it is a feminist history of computing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it emerged out of this sort of a similar impulse as everything that we do, which was, yeah. you know, I wanted it to exist and it didn't exist. I've always been really fascinated by tech history. Um, I think you could probably tell from the way that we're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, old technologies and, and data sets. And I have read a lot of books about tech history and not a lot of them consider the fact that there may have been women around or in the room or in other rooms or, you know, on the planet. So, <laughs> and I was, I've been a journalist for a long time too, as, as, as my side hustle or one of my other hustles uh, in this world. And so I was, yeah, the book came out of a series of articles that I was beginning to write. And I realized that there was just an unbelievable wealth of stories that had yet to be told and needed to be memorialized in something bigger than a blog entry. So the book was born. That's fantastic. Are you uh, writing any more right now? Uh, yeah, yes, yes, and no. It's a hard time to write right now. It's yeah. a hard time to do anything right now. But yes, I'm working on um, another book, which is sort of about um, about tech in the context of the natural world. But that's that's all I really want to say. All right, yeah, you can keep it secret for now. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you guys also uh, play Shadowrun sometimes. Is that true? Wow, that's where'd you get that intel? I probably tweeted <laughs> Actually, about it. Our guest, our last guest was Jennifer Stratford. Uh, oh, no way. Who I didn't oh. even realize was connected to you at all. And then we were She's talking about music videos and she did a music video for you. Yeah, uh, that's actually one of my favorite um, yacht chain tripping videos is the video where maybe JJ because I think it's the only time that advanced, you know, AI pose detection and facial recognition models have been run through 40-year-old analog video equipment. <laughs> yeah, that makes it's sense. It's like this unholy hybrid of past and present. And it's 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 everything that we love because it's it's activating old technology and giving purpose to old technology within a completely new context. And it's giving new technology, like, you know, some gravitas that is associated with all the great things that have come up until now. JJ is a really amazing artist and happens to also be our Shadowrun GM. Who are your characters in Shadowrun? Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> I'm an elf poser. <laughs> <laughs> is that like a, a category? A, a poser is a specific uh, category? I don't you're know. Like a, a secret yeah, it elf. Is. is it? Okay. It came from the Shadowrun book. I okay. mean, we play very loosely. It's yeah. mostly like an improvisational, you know, storytelling, s- cyberpunk LARP 
you know, <laughs> hang out. Yeah. Um, maybe JJ told you that. But yeah, he's an elf poser and I'm a, I'm an actual elf and we have this kind of adversarial relationship where I know that he's not really an elf, but nobody else does. We're both hackers. <laughs> I'm an elf hacker and he's a human elf poser hacker. <laughs> but you're not in a band though within Shadowrun. No. Uh, we actually, no, we actually are in a band oh, within we are Shadowrun. Now, yeah. yeah. We were, yeah. What's Our the band called? <laughs> the story. Well, we're the backup band for a robot or an android pop star named Lady Amaroid. Oh my god! I wish Lady Amaroid was an actual thing. <laughs> so, do so do we. So do we. So do we. So before we go, we have a tradition on state of the art of doing rapid fire questions. So these are a little oh bit crazy questions that may not have anything to do with your work whatsoever. Um, cool. So just the first thing that pops into your mind. Um, so oh yacht is an acronym for Young Americans Challenging High Technology. Uh, but now let's make up some more acronyms. So I'm going to give you a commonly known acronym, but please make up an alternate meaning for this acronym. Okay. Okay. Does that make okay. sense? Female uh, body inspector. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. The classic uh, hat that they sell on Venice Beach. Um, yep. So let's go with NASA. Ooh. Not all. <laughs> I can't start it hot with that one. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um. Not and the nachos are salsa actors. That's great. I love it. How about uh, scuba? Mm. Scuba. Okay. <sighs> Some cool underwater beings around. <laughs> okay. How about YOLO? YOLO. Okay. Yams. <clears throat> Ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> I liked yams or okay yams ordinary left out yeah no, that's good that's kind of yeah. poetic I like that I'm just okay. thinking about the yams generated left by out the machine on the counter <laughs> um, all right away from acronyms if you could bring back someone from the dead to perform as a hologram who would it be Ooh. and why I don't think I would ever put that curse on anyone <laughs> let's say you Maybe have to some, yeah I'm gonna say oh so gun to our head we have to yeah whatever yeah somebody says like you know <laughs> this is very important for us to bring back someone as a hologram who would it be okay. Hold on. Robin Williams. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. I think there's actually a clause. There's a clause yeah. in his contract that says you can't bring contract. him back as a whole. <laughs> will. That's his why estate. you want to break that clause. He's been always waiting to break the Robin Williams I want to see what it's like to get sued by a dead man. <laughs> All right. That makes sense. Um, what is the worst social network? Ooh. Facebook. Facebook. It's got to be Facebook. Well, there's... LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, there is. Don't you forget mean, about LinkedIn. Like, culturally or a worst... However Facebook you want to define it. Facebook is worse for the world. Maybe LinkedIn has the worst user experience. Maybe LinkedIn is the worst for your soul, though. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is your guilty pleasure internet site? Jonna reads a lot of Mac blogs. Oh, that's true. MacRumors.com is my... Yeah. <laughs> Not 9to5Mac.net. Or what something? is the worst rumor on MacRumors? <laughs> What's what? What's the worst rumor you found on MacRumors? Uh... There aren't really bad rumors. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's like bad renderings of what the iPhone 11 might look like. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Well, Claire, yeah, there's Jonathan, a lot of weird UI. There's a, a lot of like UI speculation about what's going to happen. Yeah. Claire and Jonna, thank you so much for being on State of the Art. Uh, I had a great time interviewing you. I hope you had an okay time hanging out with me today. Um, yeah. And what's coming up next? What should we look for? Well, tomorrow, I don't know when this is going to air, not tomorrow, but... Uh, <laughs> We've been releasing pretty much every or Friday so. or sometimes every other Friday a new cover while in quarantine. So we're revisiting our influences yet again. And I think we're going to put together at the end of this a covers album of yeah. all our favorite stuff. So, so far we've done Joy Division, Crass, uh, Land of the Loops, Sparks, Sparks, and... and 
Dub Narcotic Sound System is coming out tomorrow. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned for that and we'll post some links to all your work uh, on our Instagram as well. Uh, Thank you for joining us again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for listening to another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC. Uh, You can always follow me at Gabe BC. Uh, If you have any ideas or suggestions or comments you want to relay to us, you can send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. We're happy to read some questions on the air or uh, communicate directly with you through social media at State of the Art on Twitter and Instagram. State of the Art is an at-art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, Wesson Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire, and Vanessa Wilson is our producer. And I hope that they're all doing well, and uh, I've been communicating with them a little bit, and they seem like they're safe and healthy. And I hope our audience is also uh, doing well and staying indoors and being safe. So we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks.